Uh, hey, uh, ha happy Easter, man. This is, this is an important day. Uh, and let me tell you why it's important. Because the re resurrection authenticates everything that Jesus did. The resurrection authenticates everything Jesus claimed. The resurrection authenticates everything Jesus said about himself, about us, about life, and about eternity. The resurrection authenticates everything. It was one of the most witnessed. It was one of the most um, authenticated historical events in all of the ancient world. It's undeniable that it happened. It, 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 it was... It was it, it was attested to by hundreds of people, by historians that were, were, were neither Christian nor Jewish, who, who had no dog in the fight, just simply historians attested to the fact that the resurrection did in fact happen. It's one of the most attested historical events in all of the ancient world. And it matters. And, and actually, if you look at, 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 at the two groups that were most concerned about, the re, about Jesus and the resurrection the Jews and the Romans, if anybody had a reason to discredit it and to prove it false, it was those two groups. The Romans certainly wanted to prove that the resurrection didn't happen because the crucifixion happened at their hands. And for the crucifixion to be ineffective was a death blow to the Roman authority. And, and, so, and so they above anybody simply so they could continue to assert their authority and their sovereignty over the known world that they ruled, they had to, they had to make sure that those who were crucified died and stayed dead. <laughs> but, but on the other hand, the Jews, they're the ones who, who started this whole crucifixion ball rolling. They wanted Jesus dead more than anybody. And so the two groups that had a vested interest in proving his death and him staying dead, the Jews and the Romans, neither of them, neither of them could refute the fact that he rose, appeared to more than 500 people over the course of, of over a month. None of them could show a body. Listen, death is real easy to prove. All you got to do is show a body. You understand? Death is real easy to prove. Look, there's a body. Neither of those two groups, and, and each of them, had a vested interest in proving that Jesus was dead. Neither of them could show a body. They knew where he was buried. All you gotta do is go to the grave. It's one of the most attested to proven events in all of ancient history. And the two groups who had the most to lose by his resurrection and the most to gain by the proof of his death, neither of them could do it. Why? Because nobody could prove nobody. Now let me tell you this. If the resurrection didn't happen, people like me who claim to be Christian are to be the most pitied of all. Truly, and the, and the Apostle Paul says that. If the resurrection didn't happen, the Christians are the, they're, they're the most pitied people on the planet. But if it did happen, it changes absolutely everything. Now, other than Judas, now most of you, you know the story of Judas. Guy betrayed Christ with a kiss, paid him to do it, went and hung himself. Other than him, 
The other 12 apostles changed the world because of the fact of the resurrection. And other than Judas and everybody but John, the disciple Jesus, I'm not like his closest disciple, every one of those guys died a violent martyr's death because of the truth of the resurrection. Some are put in hollowed out logs and sawed in half. Some are crucified. One was crucified upside down because he didn't consider himself worthy to be crucified like Christ. Some were skinned alive, filleted alive. Some were boiled in oil. Some were killed by the spear and by the sword. Some were beheaded. Every one of them was convinced of the resurrection of Jesus because they had seen him and talked with him and ate with him. John was different. John the disciple, the disciple, it says, whom Jesus dearly loved. John was the guy that when Jesus was, was on the cross, ready to die, knowing he'd be resurrected and go back to heaven, had to leave the care of his mother with somebody. He's a good son, wants to take care of mama. And he tells John, John, this is now your mother. And mama, this is now your son. Like John was close to Jesus. John was different. John was the only apostle that didn't die a martyr's death. John died at about 93 years old. And so John had the unique perspective of seeing, he was one of the first disciples that, that followed Jesus. And he had the unique perspective of walking with Jesus through Jesus' entire earthly ministry, saw the miracles, heard the teachings, heard the claims, had his own doubts and struggles and belief, and he walked with Jesus for three years of his public ministry. And then John had the unique perspective of watching this new church grow in the entire first century. He saw a hundred years of church history take place. Amazing. Such a unique perspective. And then he wrote the fourth of the four Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. And so what John did as he wrote that gospel is he looks back after all of this, everything that he saw Jesus do, all the miracles, everything Jesus said, all the things Jesus taught, everything Jesus claimed. He saw friend after friend after friend come to faith, believe. He saw Jesus crucified, resurrected, and then he saw friend after friend after friend die for faith in a resurrected Jesus. And as an old man, he's thinking back and he says, if I could convey something to people who didn't see what I saw, to people who are gonna hear the words and struggle with their own belief, who are people who are not gonna, not gonna buy in right up front, there are gonna be some slow adopters here to this thing. If I, could, if I could convey to them something, what would it be? Imagine the wealth of knowledge he would have to give. And so what we have is what he pared down of all of his experience into what we have in the Gospel of John. And at flip side, we're looking at the Gospel of John. We're just looking at, because John wrote it, he says, so we would believe. So what he put there is purpose for us to believe. And so this morning, if those of you who are part of Flipside, you know where we're going with this. We've, we've been doing this all year long, just going through John. Those of you who are guests right now, I'm going to invite you into the family. 
I'm going to invite you to come home to this family for a little bit and just sit amongst us as, as we talk as a family. Right through the book of John, where we're going. And so this morning's text we're going to look at, it, I'm guarantee you, I don't think you ever, if you've ever, you ever been to Easter church before, you've never heard an Easter message, what I'm going to preach on. Never. And that's why some of y'all come to Flipside, because we, do, we, do, we don't do regular. <laughs> we do the flip side of what, what most churches do. You turn upside down a little bit. So this, this is a passage, I'm going to guarantee you, even, even you, you know, real, real flip-sided people, this isn't one you're going to hear at Easter time. But it has profound implication in John communicating this to us so that we will know and so that we will believe in this Jesus that he knew and who this Jesus is and remains to be. This message means, this, this passage means something that matters. It matters to me. And when you understand it, it matters to you. So I don't know if y'all brought a Bible this morning or you just want to listen, but if you got one, you got one on your smart device. John chapter 8. John chapter 8. Let me just read the, the, the first part of this. John chapter 8, uh, starting in verse 2. The Bible says, At dawn, Jesus appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees, these were the hyper-zealous religious people. Okay, the teachers of the law, the religious lawyers, and the Pharisees, they gathered around, and they brought a woman uh, <clears throat> caught doing something she ought not be doing. You fill in the blank. She, she was doing something she ought not be doing, someone she ought not be doing it with. Okay, you understand now? Uh, and so they made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught doing what she shouldn't be doing, something she shouldn't be doing it with. And the law of Moses commanded us to stone her. Now, what do you say? I told you this isn't, doesn't sound like a real Easter message. But, but this is why it's important. And this is why it's important to us. Because they wanted to know how Jesus treats people who mess up. Right? They wanted to know how Jesus treats people who don't measure up. This is why this is important, because I have a vested interest in how Jesus treats people who don't measure up. I have a vested interest in knowing how Jesus responds to people who fail, who sin, who screw up. I got a vested interest in this, because I am her. Does it make sense? You understand what I'm saying? This matters. I want to know how Jesus is going to respond. Because what I see in John 8 here is I see how religious people respond. See, how religious people respond to people who mess up is they want to catch them in the act of messing up. And they want to catch people in the act of messing up so they can throw the law at them. Right? You've been around people like this before. You've been around church people like this. They, they just can't wait to find you messing up somehow. Because the moment you do, the moment they catch you, boy, they're going to throw everything they know of what's wrong with you at you and everything they knew of what you, how you should do and how you ought to do and how you must be better. They're going to throw it all at you, right? That's how religious people do. I mean, I know how they respond. I don't, want to, I, I, I don't need to know how they I know how they respond. I've, I've been on the receiving end of that. What I want to know is how Jesus responds. 
Now, here, here, here's a great, great passage in the book of John. This is a great Easter passage, John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gives only begotten Son, that whoever believe in him would not perish but would have eternal life. Great Easter verse. But there's, a, there, 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 there's, there's another, another two verses after that verse, John 3, 16, that are profoundly important. And, and, and it says this. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only son. And so that, that's Easter. God loved us so much. Those who don't measure up, those who screw up, so much that he gave his son to die for our sin, for our screw ups because we don't measure up. But he didn't send him to, the, to condemn us. That's the religious leader's job. They do a great job of that. He, he sent his son not to condemn us, but that we might be saved through belief in him. And so John tells us this story because he said, I want you to understand who this Jesus is and I want you to believe in him because he changes everything. The Bible goes on and says that, that, that the, the religious leaders were, were using that question, what do you say, as a trap in order for a basis of accusing them? Because they wanted Jesus to either stand with the religious people and condemn everybody who screws up, or they wanted Jesus to say, yeah, sin really doesn't matter. And so they're trying to trap him that way. And sin does matter. But Jesus doesn't stand with the religious people. And so the Bible says this, but Jesus bent down and started right on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, if any all are without sin, be the first one to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Now, there's a lot of discussion about what Jesus wrote. And we're not told. The only thing we're told is that this is the only place in, the, in all of his, where Jesus actually wrote down anything. He never wrote a book, never wrote a pamphlet, never wrote a blog, like he never posted anything. This is the only place that we're told that he wrote anything. What did he write? I don't know. But I do know that Jeremiah 17, 13 says this. The Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you will be put to shame. Watch this. Those who turn away from you will be written in the dust. Those who turn away from you, God, will be written in the dust. So maybe what Jesus was doing was writing Jeremiah 17, 13 on the dust. Because <clears throat> they would know that those who forsake God are written in the dust. It means they don't last. They're blown away. Those who forsake God. Well, the religious people say, well, we're not forsaking God. We're upholding his law. It just says, no, no, what you're forsaking is the heart of God. You're forsaking the mercy and grace that God has for people who don't measure up. And because you've forsaken the mercy and grace of God, you're nothing but dust. Do you understand? But he could have been doing something different than that. He could have been writing out their sin. He said, those of you without sin, go ahead and cross the first stone. And then he could have started with the oldest man and started writing this list of sins. And then the old guy goes, oh, crap. I didn't think he knew about that. 
convicted walks away and just goes down the list, right? He could have wrote that sentence. But here's what, here's what I love about that. Even if that's what he did, Jesus wrote the list of their sins in dust. Now understand now, you write something in dust and it's going to be erased. You carve something in stone and it's going to last forever. God's finger carved in stone the law of God because it remains forever to remind us of our sin that we cannot measure up to his standard. Jesus' finger wrote a list of sins in dust because when it's attached to him, it's blown away. Do you understand? So Jesus could have wrote their sins telling them, listen, if all you do is confess it to me, I'm going to blow it away. It won't remain anymore. Do you see the heart of Jesus? I love how this goes down. At this, those who began, or heard, those who heard began to go away one at a time. The older ones first until only Jesus was left with the woman. Uh, she was standing there with them. Jesus straightened up and asked her, woman, where'd they go? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, sir. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. I, I love that because Jesus said, if you got nobody left to condemn you, I'm not going to stand in condemnation of you either. I've already identified your sin. You've identified your sin. And because you've identified your sin, you're with me, I'm not going to condemn you either. Romans 8.1 says this, Now therefore there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. When you attach your life to Jesus in the midst of your own sin, in the midst of your own mess, in the midst of your own failure, in the midst of everything that is going against God's standard, God says just simply because you've identified your life with me, you've come to me, there is no condemnation anymore. I don't care what anybody else says. I don't care what anybody else does. You attach your life to me in the midst of being caught red-handed in your own mess and sin. Now I've removed your condemnation. It's incredible. It's incredible. And when he tells her, go and leave your life so sin, it's not a harsh thing. He's not being, now don't do it again. Don't you mess up. I gave you one chance. You do it again, you're out. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, go now and leave your life of sin because I've set you free from the life that you once lived. You're no longer a slave to that darkness. You're no longer a victim to that dark life anymore so live in freedom of it now you're set free it's not a harsh condemnation it's it's a statement of liberation i've just set you free so don't go back to that darkness anymore here's what i know religious people want to condemn us of our past jesus wants to free us from our past you understand that that's why he came that's why he dies and that's why I wrote. But, but then, let me just do one more verse. You doing okay? A little bit warm? Well, it's, it was, it's been cold for a long time, so we've been wanting warm, so we got it. <clears throat> Can I just push this a little bit more? Look, look at verse 12. Je Jesus, he just has this incredible interaction with this woman. 
and all these religious folk. Uh, and, and then he turns this corner like, what, what are you talking about? Like this stuff we got, but now, and he says this, when Jesus spoke again to the people, verse 12, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. You're like, what? Where did this light thing come from? You were just talking to this woman, and you, you're all, and now you come out with this abstract, I'm the light of the world? But well, here, here's what Jesus was doing. He had been talking to the darkness of religious people, and then been talking to the darkness of a person steeped in sin that she just couldn't get out of. And, and so he says, I need, to, I need to combat the darkness I've just dealt with and talk about light. Because here's the thing. The, the Hebrews had a long history of the importance of light. Light played a huge role in, in, in God's people's history. Go all the way back to Genesis 1 when the whole thing began. In Genesis 1, the Bible says this in verses 2 and 3. Now the earth, remember these three words. Formless, say formless. Okay, say it with your mouths open. Formless, empty, say empty. And darkness was over the surface of the deep. Okay, so, so, so the earth was formless and empty and, and dark. And, and so because the earth was formless and empty and dark, God said what? Let there be light. Let there be light. Because what existed at the moment was formless and empty and dark. And so God said, let there be light. Because light changes everything. There's those formless, empty, and dark. And when God said, let there be light, the moment there was light, creation start to come. The moment there was light, then there could come life. But life didn't come before the light. The light came and then all life started to appear at the voice of God. Light had to be there. God had to speak it into existence because through light, life came. And so when Jesus says, I am the light of the world, he's hearkening them back to Genesis 1 and saying, I am that which creates all life. You don't have to be void, empty, or live in darkness anymore. When Jesus claimed that he was the light, he was claiming that he did what the light precipitated the three things in the book of Genesis from the beginning. He came as the illumination of God. Light brought fullness to things that were once empty. Remember, the earth was empty. God spoke, let there be light, and then fullness started to come. When Jesus says, I'm the light of the, of the light, he says, I am the thing that brings fullness to those things that were once empty. Here's what I know. Every one of us has a God-shaped vacuum in us. We've got a God-shaped hole that only God can fill. And we are formless and empty, and we try everything to fill that void. We try success, we try money, we try relationships, we try bottles, we try substances, we try everything to fill that void, and nothing fills the void. Nothing. We try toys, we try experiences, and the void just remains. And most of it just grows bigger and bigger and bigger. 
Did you know I read this statistic the other day in a book? I'm taking about 40 guys through this book. And, and one of the statistics in it said that, that the average, or, or the, 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 for the American professional athlete, the, these men and women who have attained the greatest, highest uh, success in their chosen fields, uh, professional athletes, within two years of retirement, get this, 80% of them within two years of retirement are either divorced, bankrupt, or in jail. 80% of professional athletes in America two years after retirement. You know why? Because we got a God-shaped hole that we try to put stuff in to fill it and nothing fills it. Why? Because life is empty without the life light of God. Jesus says things don't fill the emptiness. My light fills the emptiness. He says, I'm the light that brings fullness to those things that are empty. He says, I am the light that brings uh, 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 form to that which is shapeless. The Westminster Catechism is this work that, that, that tries to help people understand what it means to, to follow God, what it means to live a Christian life. And the, and, and the shorter Westminster Catechism just has this one little phrase, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's it. It's pretty simple. Enjoy God or glorify God and enjoy him forever. Our problem is that we try to glorify me and enjoy me forever. You understand? And, and when I try to glorify me and enjoy me forever, it just makes life formless and empty. And we start to realize that that God-shaped hole is a vacuum that can never be filled by me and my enjoyment. Life takes shape when we invite the lifelight of God in and learn to glorify him and enjoy him. And Jesus came as that illumination to our lives. He says, I'm the light of life. I'll bring form to that which has no form in your world. I'll bring fullness to that which is empty. He says, and I will illuminate those dark places. Those things that you're ashamed, those things that you keep, not for your exposure, but for their healing. I don't need to tell you that the world in which we live is an ever darkening place. Anxiety is rates are higher than they've ever been before. Did you know that the number one illness in women is anxiety related? Did you know that? Some of you remember like, yeah, no, duh. About time you figured it out. Did you know that the number two illness in men is anxiety-related illness? Anxiety is at an all-time high in our world, especially in America. America is one of the most depressed, dysfunctional, and unhappy places in the planet. Can you imagine? Disillusion Disillusionment is pervasive. Violence has exploded and continues to. Unfortunately for our younger generation, there's no longer a belief in them that the future is going to be brighter than the present. Debt is completely out of control at younger and younger and younger ages. For many, the very future of our planet is in jeopardy. 
And so many young ones refuse to get married at a young age because due to uncertainty and fear of the future. There's no faith and there's no trust in authority nor in institutions anymore. Individual advancement has superseded community well-being. The fact is, this is not news to any of us. We live in a dark world, yeah? And the culture that we're in breeds darkness and breeds secrecy. And it's created the vast majority of people who live in the secrecy behind screens and screen names. And it's gotten so bad that if you, if, if you, if you just do a, a, a little, just check out soci, sociologically formal and you, you see younger and younger people with these hoodies that they wear and when they want to escape, what do they do? What do you do? Pull their hoodie over their head. They just want to live in darkness. Just want to live where I can't be seen and I can't be known. And Jesus comes into this. He says, I am the light of life. Some of you have lived in darkness far too long. You lived in the darkness of anxiety. You lived in the darkness of fear. You lived in the darkness of the secrecy of your own sin. You lived in the darkness of your own failure. You lived in the darkness of your own depression. You lived in the darkness for far too long. And I am the light of life. And I don't want to be the light and illumine your life for, for, for disgrace, for shame, for condemnation. You come to me, there is no condemnation anymore. What grows in the dark but roaches and mold, huh? I'm the light of life. And he says, come on home to me and live. Come out of the darkness. Once light was spoken into creation, all creation came to life. Everything that God did came after light. And Jesus says, I'm the light of life because there's so much I want to create and do and make come to life in you. But my light has to be there first. So like he told the woman, and like he told the religious people, I'm the light. Invite me in. I change things. One last thing. Jesus says, I'm the light of the world. He said this, at, it was the end of what was called the Feast of the Tabernacles. That doesn't mean anything to us. But the Feast of the Tabernacles was a celebration they did to celebrate how God walked with the Hebrews through the desert for 40 years. And he walked with them as a pillar of light at night. And so during the Feast of the Tabernacles, they would get four 65-gallon lamps and put them outside the, the temple and light them on fire. And the whole place at night would just come alive with light to remind them of how God walked with them in the desert as a pillar of light at night. And that pillar of light at night did a couple things. One, it illuminated the darkness so they didn't have to be afraid. And two, it gave them protection from anything that would come at them. And three, it warmed them in the darkness of a desert night. 
and they would light these lamps and they would remember, remember when God was with us and it was so good and we were protected and we were safe and we were warm. Remember what that was like and they would celebrate this huge festival. But it also reminded them of at the tabernacle when the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark of the Covenant was a box and it had the Ten Commandments in it and a jar of manna and a, and a stick that grew some, some uh, uh, that budded and came to life. It was crazy stuff. And over this box was a cover called the mercy seat. And in the tabernacle where the Ark of the Covenant with the mercy seat was, God would come, and the Bible says, this is crazy, the Bible says that God would come and, and, and sit on the mercy seat because God shows up in mercy. And where he would talk with Moses face to face. The Bible says God talks with Moses like he's never done with any other man, face to face as a friend talks to a friend. And so they would light these torches to remind them, remember when God was with us and protected us and watched us and remember when he visited us with his presence? That were those were great. And, and Jesus says, listen, you're remembering what that was like because it's not like that anymore. You have to settle for systems and structures to try to connect with God because you walked away from him. See, for they, they, they walked away from God. They sinned and they wouldn't repent. And the Bible says for 400 years, God was silent. And so in God's silence, they had to create these systems and structures to remind them of what it was like. And Jesus says, you don't have to settle for systems and structures and lamps and candles anymore because now the light has come. I'm here. You can have me. You don't have to have, to have systems and structures and, and, and processes to try to feel me. Now you get me. And so what are you saying to every one of us today? I'm the light of life. You come to me, there's no condemnation. I bring fullness to that which is empty. I bring light to that which is dark. I fill the voids that you cannot fill. I love you, I died for you, I rose from the grave for you, and I leave you with an option. Accept it or reject it. Here's what I know, that he's invited you home. He's invited you home. He's invited you to, 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 to offer your life to give yourself to the, the light of God in the person of Jesus. And because of the resurrection, Jesus not only beat darkness, he beat death itself, the ultimate expression of darkness. One last thing. Jeff's going to come up here. We're going to sing in just a little bit. One last thing. Jesus not only said to those who were living in darkness, to those who were separated from him, I'm the light of life. You need to have me in you. Jesus would then say to those who claim the name of Jesus, he would tell us this, you are the light of the world. Please understand this. The, 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 the two groups here, if you've never invited the light of God into your life, that, that's one group. And Jesus says, I am the light of life. I want you to invite me in. I will fill the void. 
I will make form where there is emptiness. I'll create light where there's been darkness. But, but the second group, Jesus says, to those of us who claim the name of Jesus, he said, you are now the light of the world. So the question to those of us who have claimed the name of Jesus this Easter, the question is this. How much of your life is illuminating God? And how much of it is just illuminating other stuff? You understand? So two groups. Each of us has a chance to accept or reject the truth of what Jesus has just told us. And I invite us all to come home to the life light that is God in Christ. I want you to pray with me. Father, I thank you that you love us. I thank you that you loved us so much that you sent your son to die on a cross so our sin could be forgiven. I thank you, Jesus, that you didn't stay dead, that you had the authority to lay your life down, you had the authority to pick it back up. I thank you for what your resurrection means. I thank you for what your life means. I thank you that you are the life light for us. You are what fills the void. You are the, the, the thing that gives form to that which is empty. You are the, the thing that brings light to all the dark places that are dead and dying in us. Friends, if any of you here have never asked Jesus to come into your life, I want to invite you to do that right now. And please understand there is no condemnation for you. There's no judgment once you do this. There's simply life and the fullness of forgiveness, the promise of resurrection. I'd encourage you in this moment, just simply say in the quietness of your own heart, Jesus, I admit I'm a sinner. I admit I don't measure up to your standard. Forgive me of my sin. I accept you as the light of my life. Fill my void. Give form to that which has no form in me. I give myself to you. For those of us who claim Jesus' name, he has told us we are the light of the world. And I would invite you, if this is where you are, simply to say, Father, help me. Eliminate you, not me. You must become greater. I must become less. I've given myself to the traps of self-promotion too long. I give you today all of me. I will be your light in this world. Father, I thank you. You've invited us home. And we're coming home. You've invited us home, and we're coming home. Thank you for Resurrection Sunday. You are a good God, and it's been good for us to be together. In your name I pray, amen.